Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. And today's guest had a 26-year corporate career reaching senior executive leadership positions at both PepsiCo and the Coca-Cola Company. Hmm, competitors, we'll have to hear about that. She has held positions in sales, finance, operations, marketing, and planning, leading over 10,000 associates throughout her career. Today, she's the owner of Best You for Life, an executive leadership coaching and consulting firm, helping executives translate strategy into execution, and often a real challenge for a lot of organizations. She is one of Georgia's 100 most powerful and influential women. And in 2013, she was awarded the Corporate Phenomenal Woman Award by the Black Women's Expo in Chicago. In 2015, she was inducted into the VIP Women of the Year Circle by the National Association of Professional Women. And in 2016, became a best-selling author with Brian Tracy as her co-author for the book, The Success Blueprint. Her newest book was released just this October, Heartbeat Leadership, Empower Yourself, Engage Your Team, Impact Your Organization. We'll have to hear more about that. She has an accounting degree from the University of Iowa and holds certifications with the John Maxwell Team, Career Direct, and the Health Coach Institute. Now living in Atlanta with her husband and two teenage sons, please welcome Don Kirk. Hi, Don. Hey, how are you? I'm fantastic. Excited to hear about your career and all of these wonderful things you've done with big companies, little companies, and then what you're doing. I love the name of your organization, Best You for Life. We often ask that question in leadership. So what's the description of the best you today and how are you going to show up? So let's talk about how you got here by starting back with some of your history, Don. Sure. So I was thinking about about this and I get often asked about kind of my leadership journey. And as I was reflecting, I didn't realize, but when I look back, my leadership journey started back at a really early age. You know, it really started place when I was a musician and an athlete. That's kind of where I learned, you know, the importance of being a part of the team, a part of that your actions impact other people and how to be accountable to other people. So I grew up playing violin and flute throughout my childhood years. And I also played basketball and ran track. So that was kind of my genesis to this leadership um, piece. I started my first business at the age of 12, believe it or not, was a lawn lawn mowing business. So my dad would take me around. We'd load up the lawnmower in the back of his pickup truck, and he would take me around to the yards that we had convinced him to allow me to cut. (laughs) And that was my first business. And then I started my real job at 14, which was a summer job. I grew up in Iowa, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with detasseling corn, but I detasseled corn. Many many weeks, which was very hard work, but I loved money. I wanted to have my own money. And and my dad always instilled in me, if you work hard, you can have whatever you want. So fast forward that I decided that I really love numbers. So I went and got an accounting degree. 
but had an internship early on in my college years and decided, you know what, I like numbers, but I don't like sitting behind the desk. I really like being out interacting with people and making things happen. So I pursued a career in sales right out of college with Frito-Lay, which is a division of PepsiCo. And I ended up spending 18 and a half years there in a variety of different roles. I started out in sales. I did a little marketing. I did some finance work. I did some sales operations and then did some GM type roles and spent 18 and a half years there. Came a little weary there and said, you know what? I want a change of pace. And actually the competitor reached out to me and said, come join our team. And initially Uh I was initially like, no way. You know, I've grown up my entire life, you know, drinking Pepsi, growing up in the Midwest. You went to the red pill. I did. I did. So I ended up joining that team and spent almost eight years there and continued my leadership journey, leading large teams, leading lots of change and transformation. The largest team I ran there was I was the vice president of sales and operations for the Southeast. So I had responsibility for sales and operations, distribution, merchandising across the Southeast. So what did you find was the difference between leading smaller organizations, smaller teams, and then having this large organization of 5,000 people that, that you led? What, what do you think you see as some of the differences there? You know, on the foundation of leadership, it's not majorly different, right? You still have to lead people. You still have to have vision. You still have to hold people accountable. I think the biggest difference is you have more layers between you and the front line where everything really happens. So ensuring that your message at the top is really filtering through the entire organization. And it's the same when it gets down to the point of execution. So a little bit of that telephone game, right? Make sure that message is still very clear at the lowest levels of the organizations. How did you do that? How did you make sure you, what, you use the word? And I love the word ensure. We use that word in leadership, right? You got to mm-hmm. be, you got to ensure that what you're asking is getting done. So how did you do that with 5,000 people? Yeah. So a couple different things. One is obviously started with clear messaging with my team and having a real system for how communication cascades. Like you can't just leave it to chance that, you know, this very important message at the top is going to make it to the bottom. So I use a series of town halls to get, you know, broad messages out. We used one-on-ones, making sure you have conversations with each person to make sure you have an opportunity to ask questions, check for understanding. And of course, weekly staff meetings, reinforcing those messages, monthly team meetings. So really had a system of communication, whether it was routine things or whether it was major change initiatives. We ran that through the same communication process, week in and week out. And then, of course, you know, I like to inspect what I expect. So I had times where, you know, I'm going to go down to, you know, go out into the field and visit with all different levels of the organization. And I always just ask questions to kind of test and see, you know, what do they know? Are the messages clear? Is it, you know, how did they understand the strategy and what we're supposed to go execute? And that would give me a litmus test as to how well my leaders are communicating to their direct reports. So, you know, I'm going to go back to something you said uh, a few minutes ago as you were looking at your career with PepsiCo early on and and accounting. You said you want to sit behind a desk. You wanted to be out with the people, okay? And now what you're describing is a communication system and a process where you're out with the people. Mm -hmm. So many years later, it's the same same mantra, right? It's the same mindset. You've got to get out there and inspect what you expect and be with the people. Yes. And really, it, it ends up being 
one one-on-one meeting after another with these these micro conversations, right? It is. And I would tell you though, that's not popular and it's not really fostered in a lot of corporate environments that I've been in. I think at the oh. pace upon which we work and the pace of change and the pace of priorities and in, in, in the industries I was in, it was always about the numbers, right? Every single day, every single week, every single month. I think it's easy to forget and bypass um, and overlook the importance of slowing down to make sure you're communicating effectively. Because I, I hated doing things over and over again simply because there was miscommunication or things were not clear. So I tended to have a mindset like, okay, you know what? I'm going to take a little bit more time. Yes, I know we just had this emergency meeting, but we're going to make sure the communication is clear that when we break the huddle, that we're going to all go do what we said we're going to do and minimize, you know, how many times it has to be done or minimize how many times we miss the mark (laughs) on the objective at hand. Yeah. And I think as I listen to you talk and, and the work that you do today, but as I listen to you talk, you made the statement, it's not, it wasn't popular. What wasn't popular was a focus on the people in the process. Absolutely. You focused on the people in the process and you kept your eye on the numbers. And people get sick of me hearing me use this metaphor, but it's like my I play competitive tennis. I can't hit the ball if I'm looking at the scoreboard. Right. I've never won a match looking at the scoreboard. Right. And yet we continue as executives quite often to be looking at the scoreboard, looking at the stock price, looking at the P&L, looking at the balance sheet, looking at the numbers, looking at number sales, looking at yes. number of customers. That should be a five-minute indicator for the rest of the game for their other eight to 10 hours that you're working as an executive, right? Absolutely. I mean, the scoreboard is a lag metric of nine times out of 10, right? It's after the fact. It is a, you know, a representation of what's happened. It's not necessarily indication of what's going to happen. So I spent more time on trying to influence the lead type metrics, the things that I can influence going forward. So, you know, communicating and talking to people were key things that had to happen to ensure I could change that scorecard that we didn't like, right? Versus getting more of it. Do you remember any of your favorite questions that you would ask people when you, you got in the field and you you know you got 5,000 people and yeah. you're doing this day in and day out? What were some of your favorite questions you'd ask people? My favorite and most consistent questions was, I would always ask, what's working? Just broad, open-ended question. What's working for you? Whether it's, you know, their department, their specific job, whatever. What's working? And then conversely, I would ask, what's not working? You know, Mm -hmm. what are the obstacles? What's challenging you? And then the last question I would ask is, what do you need from me to better do your job? Wow. Wow. So, okay, Don, I got to share this with you because in my step five and building relationships in my seven steps of intentional leadership, we have the three questions. Mm. Okay. And the three questions are, what do you like or what are you doing well? What would you do differently if you tried this over again? And how can I help? Oh, wow. What you (laughs) just said is what is working? What's not working? What are the obstacles and how can I help? I mean, it's exactly the same three (laughs) questions, Don. People don't realize the power of asking these three questions rather than just going in and pointing out the problems. Right. And really, that's why these three questions are part of our model of building relationships. And you get it. I mean, so during your years, you remember anything that when you asked these questions that ever like startled you, that ever you got an answer where you're like, oh, wow, 
Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> you know what? I would probably say when I transitioned from PepsiCo to Coca-Cola, it was in the midst of a tremendous amount of change. There couldn't have been a worse time, honestly, for me to come into an organization than this one. And so oftentimes when I ask the question, what's not working? You know, I expected to get more around, you know, I need more resources, you know, we're not getting paid properly, particularly the, the further down the organization you ask these questions. But what I got that was a little bit surprising was more around culture, um, mm-hmm. lack of morale. You know, nobody cares about us other than the numbers we deliver today. Like some of these things are innate, like you wouldn't necessarily not expect people to say these things, but at the rate and the frequency that I was getting mm. the same things. Like I like to use those questions because it allows me to get themes really yeah. quickly about what's going on. What's the real state of affairs in my organization and without leading anybody down any specific topic. So the fact that there was this, this culture of being beat down, you know, not a whole lot of recognition, not really understanding how people were getting promotions, how, why people weren't getting promotions, not getting feedback on how to be better was really interesting to me. And it was really the gateway for me to come in and really have real impact right away because I started working on culture. Now, mind you, during a major change, what do you think the focus was, right? It's got to get the we got numbers get, and get the numbers going in the right direction. And I've always said, you know, why is and I'll say corporate America broadly, why is there this sense of oars all the time? You know, if you either do this or you do that. And I started this mantra of and, which is we can focus on people, systems and processes and drive and accelerate results because I felt like one and really enabled the other. So if you over rotate one way or the other, you won't get optimum results. So I started talking about the power of and versus or, and that if I was going to make my bet anywhere. I was going to always bet on the people process and system side because I knew that long-term and sometimes in the short term, it's going to drive the right outcomes, but you have to be patient so that you can replicate it and that it's sustainable. I love this, the power of and, and I'm, I'm going to repeat it, the power of and, because it's something that so often we get asked the question, well, what do you think will work, this or that? Right. I was a uh, 27-year-old manufacturing manager. I have a mechanical and metallurgical engineering degree. So after I got out of the Army, I was stuck in manufacturing. And I can remember a, a back tender of a paper machine. Now, a back tender of a paper machine, their average length of service on these paper machines in a plant would be like 20 to 25 years. Mm-hmm. They knew these, these pieces of machinery inside and out. And I played tennis with this guy, so he was a little bit you know, in my face in a joking way, but he, I remember his name was rich. I don't, I'll never forget him. And he comes up to me and he says, so Gary, what do you believe in that engineering bullshit that you learned in school or the way these machines really run? <laughs> a typical and question or, or question. And right. I said, well, rich, I can answer that question in one word. Yes. <laughs> right. And he, and he yeah. goes, what? And I said, well, here it is. Here's the thing, man. You and I have different experiences, different backgrounds, different educations. I respect what you've learned on this piece of equipment, and I would never disrespect that. Mm -hmm. I would ask you to do the same with my education. What I know is you know more about this equipment. What I know is more about the theory and how I might be able to help you run this equipment better. If we put our heads together, I'll bet we can do it. Yeah. That's the power of and, isn't it? It absolutely is. 
Absolutely, yeah. So I didn't know that phrase, the power of and back then, but I was using the, the response. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't it funny how a lot of the things that you and I probably did throughout our leadership journey, we didn't necessarily recognize it as some of the things that we say today. But when you reflect is when you start to discover the themes behind what you've done and what you really believe about leadership at the end of the day. Well, yes. And that's the whole point of this podcast is to make this visceral, to make this aware, to make this right in front of us invisible, that we want to people to start using this more, the power of and. So I, I, I love that. And, and a corollary, a cousin of a power of and is to hear what, you know, what the problems are, what's going wrong. And now tell me what we can do. Right. Stop telling me what we can't do. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm sure in this journey, you were listening to all this. Uh, morale is low. No one cares about me. Uh, we're not getting recognition, promotions. We're not getting feedback. All of the things that you talked about. And you okay, great. So in the culture, what can we do to turn that around? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm sure, I will bet you, I don't know you that well, but I'm going to bet you that those very words came out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The other one I used to say a lot was can't or won't. There's a difference. Meaning, are you just not willing or we're not able? Those are two different things as well. (laughs) We can do anything. Nine times out of 10, we can do anything. The question is, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to resource it? Are we willing to do what it takes to get it done? And sometimes that's the difference. And one of my favorite ones when I would, you know, when I was an executive of different organizations is I would ask people, so what are you doing about this? Right. Because as an executive, they think, you know, you're the, you know, you're going to be the white knight and you're coming in on your white horse, right? Right. Dawn, you're going to, you're going to solve all the problems. And, you know, Dawn, she's this new executive that's going to come in and solve all my, no, I'm not here to solve all your problems. Right. So what are you doing about it? Or what have you done about it in the past? Mm -hmm. And asking them to step up and be responsible or what might you do or what might we do together? Mm-hmm. And yeah. instead of putting all the responsibility, because one of the things I would never do is take all the responsibility. I, I, although there was one case when I was the safety manager of the worst safety plant at Scott Paper back in the eighties, they were number thirteen out of thirteen. I took over as the safety manager. One of the things that I did is I, I reprinted all of the accident investigation forms, and at the very top of it, it said. When you're starting an accident investigation and you're looking for someone to blame, blame Gary McGrath, safety manager. I'm responsible for safety. Now go solve the problem. <laughs> because what I found was people were blaming management, blaming the employee, blaming the equipment. It was always about blaming. It wasn't about problem solving. And they would right. spend 59 out of 60 minutes of an accident investigation trying to figure out how to blame. And it was a complete waste of time right. instead of looking at the root cause of the problem, Absolutely. which takes me back to something. I made another note on here. When you're looking at numbers that are lag indicators that you mentioned, the numbers give you a symptom. Right. The culture that they were describing, a lack of morale, no feedback, no one cares. That's a symptom. Absolutely. And you had to dig into it and find the cause. Because if you're going to solve the cultural problem, you've got to find out the root cause. And I'm sure you did that. So how did you go about uncovering the cause from this just unbelievable amount of information that was being thrown at you? Yeah, continue to ask the next layers of questions, you know, seeking examples of what caused people to make these comments. So it's like, give me an example of that or what makes you believe this? What's happened to you specifically? 
And, you know, through talking to various people, again, I always talk all throughout several layers as well, because I wanted to understand, was this something that was just happening at one level? And how was this being facilitated, if you will, or fostered throughout as we went upstream? And so at the root of it, at the end of the day, after asking, you know, for examples and talking to numerous people, was really this notion of just communication. I mean, it came down to really, you know, how are leaders engaging their direct reports? How is information being passed along? And more importantly, is the why being communicated with the what? So everybody got the what to do all the time, but not necessarily the why and why it was important, you know, the impact this particular department or the impact of this particular team has on the bigger picture. They were only getting the micro, here's what you need to do, and not understanding how it connected to the bigger pieces of the puzzle. So we just really started with being very intentional about explaining the whys, why it's important, what's in it for you, and how does your job connect to the bigger picture. Um, And again, using those same systems, starting at the top, you know, town halls, you know, one-to-ones, weekly staff meetings, monthly team meetings having a structure where people can always ask questions and information can always have dialogue back and forth really became, you know, at the end of the day, somewhat simple, a simple solution to a very complex problem that it was causing. And it usually is. And, and I say that the, the responsibility of the leader is to connect the why with the what, mm-hmm. but to do it at the micro level. Because you're at a senior level where you see the big picture, you see the strategies, you see, you know, what's going on in the marketplace and you understand the why in a lot of ways down to how it impacts all the jobs. The challenge for people is in their daily grind, in the work that they're doing every single day, whether it's in sales or operations, you know, moving Coca-Cola from point A to point B or selling it another distribution avenue for the, for the product, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. it's a, it can be a grind. It is a grind. <laughs> and they often are. And, and our job as the leader is to remind them of why they're doing what they're doing, because it's like you wake them up from an unconscious state of grind and you say, hello, Don, Don, are you there? Yes. Why are you doing this? You go uh, uh, to make money. Why? Yeah. But why are we making money? What are we trying to do? Mm-hmm. What's our why? What's our purpose? behind all of this. I have an organization that I work with that sells and distributes basically snacks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Salty snacks, sugar snacks, those kinds of things. And the CEO says, you know, people buy our stuff. We sell candy, big deal because our underlying purpose is how do we give back to our community? Mm -hmm. The whole organization is centered around what they can do to use the resources of the company because people buy all these snacks and these candies and the, you know, jerky treats and all that stuff right? so that they can give back. I mean, this guy builds a house for Habitat for Humanity every year. That's awesome. All right. He expects everybody throughout the country to give back to their community. That's part of their why. And if you don't want to come here and give back to your community, just to, if you just want money, if you just don't come here. Right. Because we're going to have events every year where people are going to be expected to go out and give back to their community. That's part of their why. Right. And people need to be reminded that that's the leader's responsibility. And I'm excited that now I think this is what you help people now with your best you for life. I mean, how do you embody that all of that learning that you learned for 26 years and you lived 
Now you're helping executives do that today, right? Absolutely. I'm so passionate about it. So (laughs) and coaching, the thing I love so much of what you've done here, I tell people, what's the number one skill of a coach? It's questioning. Absolutely. And that's what you've been doing this whole time. Well, I asked this question. I asked this question. I asked this question. People need to pay attention to this. You want to become a great leader, a great executive, a great coach. You have to learn to ask good questions. And I didn't do that in the beginning. The other thing is the word coaching is misused a lot in corporate America. And I didn't know what coaching really meant. The picture of coaching for me was going out, working with somebody, pointing out everything that they did wrong and tell them how to fix it. That's what I thought coaching was. Why is that? Why do you think that is? It's, it's easier. It's honestly easier. And it's quote unquote believed to be easier and faster to just point it out. And also. Okay. So here's, I'm going to go back to your musician and athlete because the attachment of the, the definition of the word coach goes back to the beginnings when we were young and in high school or college or whatever. And we had a coach and what did a coach do? They told you what to do and how to do it. Exactly. You know, if you were in track, they would tell you, Don, you need to stand up straight or use your arms. You need to take your step here. If you're a musician, you need to use your pinky on your flute or your violin or whatever it is you're right. over here or over there, right? That's not what a business coach does. No, it's not. Can I tell you when my epiphany really happened? And it Please. was really late. It was really late in my career when the light bulb really went off about what it really meant to coach. And it wasn't until I went to the John Maxwell team certification. And we were sitting in a room, thousands of people, and uh, the instructor was on the stage. He's like, okay, I want you to grab a partner and we're go- you're going to coach them how to juggle. I'm like, what? I've never juggled in my life. Like, how could I coach somebody on something I don't know how to do myself? Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. And so we-, we went through this exercise and he's like, okay, try to juggle. And so, of course, all of us are fumbling the balls all over the place, right? And then he asked some questions. He's like, okay, so, you know, how many times were you able to get the ball around? And you might say one. Okay, how did you do that? You know, it it was, and it was just, and by the end of this exercise, literally those of us who've never juggled before, being coached by somebody else who's never juggled before, we both were able to do some semblance of juggling by the end of this session. And it blew my mind. Because all this time I thought I needed to be the expert in order to coach. And I can't tell you how many times today I have to explain to people when they say, well, you know, what areas do you coach? Well, don't you have to be, I'll give you a prime example. Somebody was trying to hire me and they said, well, have you not been, have you been in this, this level of position before? And I was like, not that specific level, but it's really not a requirement for me to have done that specific job. So a lot of people still don't understand Coaching is about digging into yourself and me asking you the right questions because you have answers. You just haven't asked yourself the right questions and and raise your awareness. To your point, again, I'm going to go back to my model because I like the seven steps. Step six is competency. And there's three areas, leadership, management and functional or technical competency. And when you talk about coaching, we're talking about technical or functional competency that people think they need to have in order to be able to lead and manage. Mm -hmm. So I will tell you that what I was in seven different roles in 10 years in manufacturing when I worked for Procter & Gamble and Scott Paper. And my favorite three words, 
I don't know. No, exactly. I don't know. How did you do it before? What would you do this time? Do you think it'll work? I I would just ask a series of questions. And it was really interesting because it would drive people nuts. Well, you're you're the supervisor. You're supposed to know. No, no. I am a I was a former army officer with an engineering degree, and I'm walking into the bounce unit at Procter and Gamble in Greenbank, Wisconsin. I know nothing about making bounce. Right. (laughs) The average Length of service of people working on those lines was more than 10 years. I'm going to tell you how to do your job. Are you kidding me? Right. You just said something key, though, but that's what many leaders go in and do. And that's how you alienate your team. That's how you disengage your team because there's like, hey, you just got here. We've been doing this. Nobody's asking our, our feedback. They're asking. They're not asking our input. They're not listening to our ideas and suggestions. That's why, because of this model of we typically promote the, the model has been you promote the best of whatever. Yes. I was just going to say that. Yes. <laughs> Wrong. Right. And so therefore we've un- the unintended messaging of that is that you have to be the expert to be promoted. And if you're promoted, you must be the expert. And so, you know, that, that creates the challenge in corporate, or I shouldn't say just corporate America, any leadership anywhere. role. Yeah. Anywhere. Well, it's, and, and I, I wrote down here, the expert mindset. When we have the expert mindset and we promote people based on that. In fact, I, when I work with organizations, I said, it's a couple of things that we do about promotions. And I say, well, if you got 10 people, only three of them really have the leadership and management capabilities, according to research, to be able to get to the next level. The other seven don't. And Gallup says that we promote the wrong person 84% of the time. Mm-hmm. So you can double your chances to pick the right person by picking a name out of a hat. Can I get that's pretty thirty percent. I got a thirty percent chance. I also tell them typically if you find somebody with the right skills and they're an average salesperson, average technician, average software developer, whatever the technical skill is, they will make a better leader because they'll walk in and they'll go, Well, you guys know better how to do this than I do. How can I help? You said something really key because one of the biggest challenges I had, because similar to you, you said seven positions in 10 years. I did 16 roles in 26 years was I was always in this, like every 18 months, I'm in a new role, new position, you know, half of them were promotions, half of them were lateral moves. And so, you know, part of my confidence level sometimes was like, oh my gosh, you know, I haven't done this job and I'm being promoted into it. And then also people looking at you going, okay, why does she get promoted? She never did this job or what have you. And I think out of survival, I learned these, looking back, these leadership principles of I've got to ask questions. Like I've got to learn. I've got to tap into all the expertise around me or I'm never going to survive even as the leader. Right. And so it's just really, really interesting. And then a, a lot of the challenges on how I promote it was challenged a lot as well, because I didn't just always promote the longest tenured person or the top person all the time, because it was bigger than that. It's like, you can be the best at something, but that doesn't mean you can lead through others and teach them how to do what right. you've done. You know, it's a whole different skill set, and people don't understand that. And, you know, I mean, people can't see you and don't know your ethnicity, your culture, your background, but just as a woman in a yeah. fortune 500 company being in that situation, that had to be really hard at times. It was extremely hard. And I would tell you that that's where a lot of my passion for leadership and mm-hmm. development really is born from. It's just because of my own, you know, challenges through that process and, and trying to contribute and add value in a place that looked different. Right. So, I mean, many mm-hmm. times I was the either only woman and or only African-American woman in the room and, you know, trying to make sure I found my 
my voice and continue to add value was extremely frustrating at times, challenging at times. And but that's where my my journey for learning really, really became strong. It's like, you know what? I can let this, you know, I always say there's two choices I had. I could respond, which is more positive, or I could react, which is negative. And of course, there are plenty of days I just wanted to react and be angry and, you know, stand on the table and beat of on the course. table. But I said, you know what? That's not going to get me far for long. So let me go and really learn how to do this thing, like be an example for others to follow and be the leader that I want to be led by and took that approach instead. Yeah. So what we didn't know through all of these jobs, the jobs for your 26 years and the 10 years that I was in manufacturing is we were in training Mm-hmm. for what we do today. You're absolutely right. You know, so I'm going to ask you the, the last question I always ask people in my podcast. If you could write yourself a letter and send it back to yourself 20 to 25 years, what would you tell the young Don? I don't mean the uh, the 11-year-old or 12-year-old that was mowing lots, okay? <laughs> but the 20-year-old or the 30-year-old Don, what would you tell yourself back then? And it would be a really short letter. I think the opening line would be, this journey is not about you. Mm. It's it's not about you. You know, everything that you do, you know, leadership at the end of the day is about influence. It's not about position and title. It's not about even how much money you make. It's about what impact you're going to have for those around you. How do you make the world a better place in the space that you're in? And that's, that's your responsibility. The rest will take care of itself. So don't get so caught up on the outcomes. Focus on what you can control, which is your behavior, your learning, the decisions you make every day, and the rest is going to take care of itself. Yeah, that's great advice. That's great advice. I want to finish up by sharing with you, because I thought about leadership in terms of of influencing for many, many years, and there was a close friend of mine that often said to me, there's something about that that doesn't feel right. Mm. And, And I was like, so for so many years, Don, I tried to figure out what... I could say that would feel right. And I've got a definition of leadership I'd like to share with you. Okay, absolutely. The ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassionate accountability. Mm-hmm. Like it, it starts with building relationships. It's understanding what goals we're trying to achieve together and working through that. And then if we can do that with compassionate accountability, then we can do great things. And that's our definition of leadership. I would agree. I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. I think that, yes, we could go on for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) Thank you, Don, for being our guest today on Leading from the Front. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Gary. I enjoyed it. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassion and accountability. Thank you again for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care and be well. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.